The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mental Podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Alexander, Arthur Gregoriades, and I have a different show for you today. It's a show that I've been hesitant to release, and it's a show that I was hesitant to record because it forced me to confront and face something that uh, I've been carrying my whole life. It's my deepest source of shame. And as you guys will know from some of the episodes I've done with people like Rocco Jarman, I really believe that shame is one of the root causes of all our pathologies and failings as human beings. And if you're carrying shame, it, it cannot help you in any way. It can only hold you back and only hinder you. And so in this particular episode, I reveal a great source of shame. And uh, to me, it took a lot of vulnerability and even right now, I'm, I'm anxious as I'm recording this intro. I'm, I'm, there's some trepidation about recording this and then finally releasing the episode. But I made a decision a long time ago that I was going to be the kind of man who faces his fears. And even though I'm really afraid of doing this, I know that it's something that has to be done. So let's dive in to the second part of the David Jurasek interview in which I, I reveal and confront my biggest source of shame. I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Mr. Jurasek, welcome back to the show. I'm so happy you've made the time to come and do an additional episode because I know everyone who listened to that first one will have been well impressed and been wanting more. So it's just wonderful to have you back. Thanks, Nick. It's such a joy to be back. Uh, the last time we met was such a great conversation that I wanted, I wanted part two also. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciated it. I could tell straight away that you're, uh, you're the real deal. You know, it's, you're one of those guests. I didn't know you when we recorded. So in those instances, I'm usually, usually taking a chance based on the recommendation of a friend or a publicist or something like that. And, uh, as I've been saying on, on my show, uh, in the intros as of late, sometimes I'm disappointed. Sometimes like the guest comes on and it's just, it's just not good. It might not be because they're a low quality guest. It might be because there's no synergy or there's no uh, meeting of the minds, you know, and it just doesn't really, a good conversation doesn't emerge. And then it's usually been a waste of my time and the guest time, but you were one of those guys. I'm really glad I took a chance on. Wow. It's an honor. Thank you. Yeah. So what we, what I'd like to discuss today is such a, an interesting topic to me for several reasons. We didn't get to it last time. And I feel that uh, it's something that, that needs to be covered because it's a big part of your story, which is you lost a testicle to cancer. Is that right? I did. Yeah. Uh, it's been about three years now. Okay. And, and your, the interesting thing is that you claim that this has had no impact on your ability to Ah, oh, so to be a great lover and a and a man—that's my understanding. It's actually had a positive impact. 
Hmm. So uh, it's a really, yeah, it's a fascinating turn of events for me and unexpected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So about three years ago, it was summertime and I, I was riding my bike a lot coming home from work and I was working in, in children's mental health with a lot of families. I was running a dojo mm -hmm. doing martial arts with families as a type of therapy. And I feel like I was, I was at kind of at my prime physically, you know, mentally, emotionally, mm -hmm. but I was also pretty obsessed with being in service in service to families and the agency that I worked for. So I put a lot of emphasis on, on that and on personal growth. I was really obsessed with constantly pushing myself to grow in different areas. So anyway, I get home one day, uh, it was a hot summer July day and uh, I'm sweating. I get in the shower and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm showering myself, washing myself. I'm like, wait a second. There's, there's something wrong with one of my testicles. It's a little, it's a little puffed up. And, you know, I think I did the typical guy thing, which is, ah, oh, it's fine. No, There's nothing wrong. Don't worry about it. And then I get to the bedroom and my wife's like, whoa, she noticed right away. It's like, whoa, what's that? And she starts groping me and checking me out and she can be a little worried about physical stuff a little bit more than I am in terms of like, I think, oh, she worries too much, you know? So I kind of downplayed it, but something didn't feel right. I go to see my doctor and he's the kind of doctor where you show up on time, but you're waiting 20 minutes to see him. He gives you about three minutes of time while he's taking notes and rushing off to the next patient, you know? And so he takes a look, he, he, he kind of downplays it. He's like, yeah, it looks all right. Maybe it's, maybe it's this, it could be cancer. I mean, he just kind of brings up that word. And I was like, I've got cancer in my family, but I'm the healthiest person that I know literally. Uh, and I'm around pretty healthy people too. So and he just says, you know, well, well, we should do some tests, but everybody that I know is on vacation right now, all the urologists. So let's wait a couple of months and then in September, we'll get you, we'll get you on a list to get tested. And I just got to say, before you continue, this sounds like an extraordinarily shitty doctor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It's hard to find a good doctor in Canada. <laughs> There's a shortage of doctors in Toronto, particularly. And um, yeah, I've been looking for a new, I, I think I found a better doctor since then. But the cool thing is like within an hour or two, I get back to work and my wife, you know, something she said really, really resonates with me. Like something's going on in my body. I'm, I don't understand it. And I just went online and I found there's a resource for find, finding doctors and rating doctors. And I looked for best urologist in, in my uh, province state area. And I found the top three and I contacted them. And 10 minutes later, the number two urologist in Canada, his, his like personal assistant calls me and she's setting up a test for me the very next morning. And I just, it was tremendous to feel like I'm being taken care of by a professional team of people. 
So I, I go through the, you know, I went through the denial. Oh, it's probably nothing, that I, but I should get it tested. Okay, fine. But something in me knew, like something was off. And I got tested the next morning. I got the results within an hour or two. It was pretty awesome. And yeah, I got a biopsy and I, I got cancer. Then they had to figure out what kind. And like things really moved quickly, which I'm very grateful for. Uh, within a few days, I was in a few meetings. They were telling me prognosis and the next steps. And I was put on a list to have surgery right away. And what kind of struck me was I have a few doctor friends, you know, so I had deep conversations with them. And I, one of them has cancer. He's, he's 80 years old now and he's been fighting his own battle. What struck me was that. Cancer is the cells in the body multiplying without limits. And it seemed to me that the parallel was that I, I was not respecting any of my own limits. There were places in my life where I wasn't saying no enough. I wasn't setting boundaries. I was putting a lot of expectations on myself and not respecting my need to rest to savor life, to enjoy the moments that I have with people. So that, you know, that kind of sank in over those weeks. Uh, I remember vividly every time I went to go see a test, to go do a test or go to talk to a doctor, the, the journey to walk from my car to the hospitals and just meeting all these people and smelling, like literally smelling the flowers that were on the way to the building. Hmm. taking the time to like go holy shit you know like this is a precious the most precious resource i have is this this life this moment right now hmm. there's no certain future and for me the other thing that flipped that month was that i realized i was putting all my relationships second all my relationships were in the service of my growth. I was so obsessed with growth that relationships were the vehicle. And it just struck me how wrong that was, how I was misaligned. And within a few, few weeks of just sitting with the reality, you know, I've got this, these cells are in my body are multiplying at a rate that they could, if nothing happens, if nothing, if no one intervenes, they're going to destroy me going to kill me within a year or two and there's a team of people that are ready and mobilized to help that to prevent that mm. that are on my side right and it became really clear that what i needed to change was i needed to put my relationships first and everything else second and it felt like a relief in a sense hey, I, I'm still running incredible programs and retreats and doing cool stuff. But it's, it's like, how can I get my favorite people together and do really wonderful things with the time that we have? Mm. You know, How can I impact the lives of my clients and mentees uh, and only work with people I love working with? Mm. I also stood up to the, um, there are certain powers that be in my life that I was disagreeing with kind of politely in a back channel kind of way. And I decided to stand up to them more directly. 
And uh, that changed the course of my life too. I felt my anger as a man and as a warrior was even more life-giving and like a scalpel. It was, it was a tool to get to the core of what's important and cut away everything else. Hmm. Um, so it was a really profound month for me of, of, you know, being on this kind of edge of life and death and knowing the prognosis is pretty good, but not having any certainty and waiting for the surgery. And it was, it was awesome. I, I went in, I went in, I had like 20 people walk me through different stages of the surgery before, during, and after I came home. It's weird to have one testicle. Uh, I find it kind of funny uh, because, you know, the testicle is like a symbol of manhood and virility. Right. And I'm like, and I've been getting tested every month or or so for my testosterone levels. I have more testosterone now, three years later, and ever since my surgery than I did before removing one testicle. And there's certain things I changed in my in my health routine, I think that facilitate that. But I think most of it was I got really comfortable with my own anger and with saying no and with loving limits, really really respecting limits. Death is coming for all of us. The body is a beautiful, right? It's a beautiful thing to have a body that's alive and healthy, but it's going to deteriorate no matter Mm -hmm. how, how well I treat it. And it's like a garden. Every garden has its peak and then it, it declines and goes, it dies and decays. Mm -hmm. So the reason, so thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, David, mm-hmm. the reason I wanted to speak about this topic is because uh, this, this is actually, this is one of those points in life where you, you have to face your fears. For me, I was, when I was born, I had an undescended testicle that was removed shortly after my birth. And at a very young age, my mother was talking to one of my childhood friends, one of my best friends at the kitchen table. And she told her friend this and my little buddy overheard this and subsequently went and told everyone at the school. And what that did to my psyche as a kid, like Mm. the repercussions of it are still being felt to this day in my life. I realized if I look at my life and Mm. I say this with the risk of sounding arrogant, but I became twice the average man to make up for that deficit in my mind. Mm. You know, that, that I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm only half a man. I've got to be twice the average man. So I became the strongest, like most dangerous, most courageous version of myself I could possibly be to make up for, for that. And mm. recently I was with a, a group of amazing men, very powerful men. And one of them, just casually let it slide. We were talking about something. Now, just to put it in context, this guy was, um, he played college football, like super athlete, total stud guy. I mean, the guy has slept with more women than, you know, 10 of the average men. Just a cool dude, just a guy's guy. And we, he, he was just chatting to myself and a friend and he just let it slip. He was like, yeah, and I, 
you know, I had a, an understanded testicle. And so sometimes I can't even remember what the context was, but he, I think he was talking about like wearing a jock strap during jujitsu training or something like that. And he just let it slip like it was nothing. And I remember thinking to myself, fuck, this is this one of the biggest secrets I've kept my whole life that mm. that's like fucking at me, been eating away at me my whole fucking life. And this guy just doesn't bother him at all. Mm. And I actually like spoke to him privately about it later. And he was just like, yeah, man, it's never held me back in any way. And it was there. And then, then I realized like, fuck, I got to stop letting this thing hold me back. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation with you. It's because it was a source of shame in my life for so fucking long, dude, for so long, mm. the source of shame. And I just realized, yeah. I mean, this is a part of me was thinking, Nick, do you really want to talk about this on your podcast? You know, with thousands of people <laughs> hear about this. Another part of me was like, no, fuck it, bro. You've chosen to live your life, you know, with, with courage. And this has been the thing that I've been most ashamed of and most afraid of for my mm -hmm. whole life. And I wanted to have this conversation with you as a kind of a, a counterpoint. You, you could be like a counterpoint or a, mm. uh, someone who could, I could speak to about. It. And so I, I thank you and thank you for listening. And let's dive wow. a little bit deeper now. Wow. I want to just commend you for your courage to share that because every single man that I've ever been close to or worked with has shame about something. And often it's, there's physical anchors, you know, my ears are too big. My penis is crooked. My, uh, I'm too chubby here, too skinny there. I got shamed a lot. I was in a football school in high school and there were lots of guys doing, uh, uh, drug enhanced, you know, taking steroids, steroids and yeah. Such. Yeah. yeah and i was a skinny kid <laughs> so they were always picking on me pencil neck and jabbing me and uh putting me down for how weak i looked and that's what got me into jujitsu and aikido right <laughs> to show <laughs> them that even those skinny scrawny guys can uh have some power <laughs> uh, but you know like i think that shame is universal in the sense that we all come through our culture of malehood mm. being in some way some point someone puts us down and it really really it really stings and really stays with us and the only way out of that is to unshame is to tell our story is to confront mm. the that dark stifling the shame wants us to sh to stay silent to never speak about it and to bury it and then to put on a fake mask, right? To compensate, overcompensate. And part of unshaming is to, is to come out into the light and say, yeah, this is who I am. This is part of who I am. It doesn't have to define me. And yet. Brene Brown says yeah. uh, that, that secrecy is a, uh, a Petri dish for, for shame. Right. Like it grows, it grows in secrecy. Exactly. That's, yeah. So. Yeah. One of the things that was really beautiful around my surgery and my cancer was I decided to say, fuck this. Um, I have friends who've gone through divorces and cancers and all kinds of, and what they they've done, a lot of them is they've isolated and disappeared for a year or two and you're mm -hmm. calling them. I'm, I'm trying to reach them and they're just, they're just in shame. Right. And I said, fuck that. I am going to reach out like nothing before. 
You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell everybody I know I got cancer. Hey, I'm fine. I got help, but I'm a little vulnerable right now, and my family's really vulnerable. My wife and daughter are freaking out, and hey, we could use some support. Just you knowing what's going on, what we're going through. We're not going to be some, you know, perfect family that tells you everything's fine all the time. We're going through a crisis, so uh, it brought forth a lot of amazing people. Yeah, um, and then like you, you know, sharing their stories and bringing this one guy flew from uh, Nevada, a friend of a friend, and he came and brought me CBD oil that he <laughs> himself makes. I was like, this is incredible, right? That's so cool. People came to my backyard and we built a play structure for my daughter because hmm. I couldn't I couldn't move very much with for the first few months. So yeah, I think the, the real beast is shame. Yeah, and if, if we you know what I was reflecting on is at its roots, you know, like it's evolutionarily it's you're concerned about being shunned by the tribe, which back in the day meant death, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or, close to death usually. And, you know, when I was thinking about whether I was going to share this with, with you through this or anyone actually, because I've, I've been telling a few people close to me over the last few weeks and, and month or two, you know, what I realized is I would never, if someone shared something with me about a challenge that they had or a lack that they felt was evident or whatever, like, you know, I would never shame them or put them down and anyone in my life who would choose to judge me or view me as less of something for something like that you know fuck that person you know they're, they're a garbage human being you know like i'm just not interested in being around them anyway um or having them in my circle anyway so it's it's almost like that's something to consider is mm. the people who count quality people are not going to judge you. Right. At least that's right. my hope. Right. And I think there's a, there's a kind of a place where what if there are people in our lives like family or loved ones or, or old friends who do have judgment? Um, how do we deal with them? Right. And, and maintain our own dignity and our humanity. Cause that's what you're sounds like. That's what you're taking a stand for is the opposite of shame is dignity and humanity and integrity, wholeness. I refuse to hide or fragment myself. Uh, I want, I'm a whole being deal with it. And it gives permission to other people to show up whole, but it also provokes shame in people who are carrying shame. And I, I kind of think about it like with compassion, like my family or certain friends can't accept all that I am. And it's, it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's because they can't accept themselves yet. Yeah. Yeah. You said it. And that's, that's really, that's kind of tragic, right? Like they're going to die one day and they're probably going to regret that they didn't live fully and, and show up fully because they were in that, that hole of shame themselves. And, and they had a chance when they saw me climb out of my hole, they had a chance to say, Hey, can you help me climb out of mine? Yeah. yeah. They chose to stay there and, I feel, I feel sadness for that, for the people in my life that, that stay in shame uh, when the opportunity is there is to unshame together. For, mm -hmm. for me, I've discovered over time that 
people come to me as a therapist or as a mentor with shame, right? Mm-hmm. Wanting to confess and wanting to get it off their chest. But it's really when we share it when within community that it heals more fully. Because it's in community where we were wounded. It's in relationships, right? Like sure. in the locker room. It's in, it's in the it's in what that guy said, but it's in the way you felt walking around as a little kid. Mm-hmm. feeling like people are looking at you like you were less than mm-hmm. and so the healing of it fully is to allow more people in your life to know people who deserve your your confidence and trust not everyone deserves to know mm-hmm. everything that's going on for us there's certain people who've earned it but to 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 realize that there are people who really accept you for all that you are warts and all Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. It's related to uh, the, the work I've been doing with my mentor and coach. You know, it, it, he's someone who I'd, I'd like you to meet one day. But he he taught me that at the root of everything, we have either a core feminine wound or a core masculine wound. And the core masculine wound is I am too much or I have not done enough. And the mm-hmm. core feminine wound is I am not enough or I have not done enough. And I realized that that for me, that was the, that was actually a core feminine wound is like, I'm not enough. I'm Mm -hmm. not enough. Right. So I've got to do more. I've got to be more. I've got to, you know, achieve more and counterintuitively the way you upgrade or the way you heal a a masculine wound is you upgrade your feminine and the way you you heal a feminine wound is you upgrade your masculine. Mm -hmm. So that's, been really interesting to me the, like this process of like working with this wound and and how i i um, have chosen to heal it mm. you know intuitively i knew even as a kid i was like fuck i've got to be more masculine i've got to take more risks i've got to get into more fights i've got to do more courageous things i've got to be more manly right which is actually not a healthy expression of upgrading your masculine but it was an attempt all the same right of course mm. And that, that makes sense, you know, there's honor in that journey, I believe, because mm. as a little kid, I mean, as a teenager, that's, we weren't really given many more pathways than that, right? <laughs> Either collapse and swallow the shame, collapse into agreeing with it, or defy it, and rebel against it. But mm-hmm. shame is like a sticky, yucky substance that's, you know, it's like tar. You can't just kind of deny it or cover it up it's still there mm-hmm. it has to be it has to be like cleansed from the nervous system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i don't know anybody who knows how to do that especially as a kid or as a teenager and even as adults most people even people who've gone to therapy for 20 years or been part of personal growth communities not don't necessarily understand shame and how how it works how to get it out of your system. And um, the way, the way you get it out of your system is by sharing and bringing it to the light. Is that correct? Well, i I think there's stages of it. I think that's a definite stage that has to happen. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can cleanse it and, and get it out of your nervous system. And then you never talk about it. I think you will naturally talk about it because it's part of your life story. It made a dent in your, consciousness and it it informed and shaped who you became right and it can be like scar tissue it can be a a source of strength to go yeah 
for 30 years or whatever, I lived under the shadow and I compensated and survived and, and I learned these things. And then one day I walked away from that shadow entirely and now I'm in the light and fuck, it feels great. But I also learned a lot from being in the darkness, right? Sure. I think there's so much to be shared from shame. Every man that I've ever known who's thought of committing suicide, for example, by sharing their story of despair and helplessness and, and shame, liberate other men. So those men don't have to go that far, right? Um, I think that's the gift we give forward when we've, when we've survived shame, when we've unshamed. I do think that there has to be a physiological release also. So sharing the story is important, but it's also like the feeling in the body, like, ah, yeah. it's disgust. It's gross. Like it's, it's like when you have um, heavy metals in your blood, right? You got to mm-hmm. detox and get that out. Otherwise it, it stays in there and it poisons your body. Like, yeah, I think shame uh, is that kind of all, all emotional energy it hurts the body when it's trapped in the body, sure, but sure. can inform and, and heal the body when it's moved through and released. Uh, for example, there's, there's healthy shame. There's a sense of like, I'm out of integrity with who I really am. I feel embarrassed. I feel humbled that I'm behaving out of sync with my soul, with my essence, right? That's healthy shame. I can't actually access that healthy shame if I'm if I've got the toxic shame. Mm-hmm. Right. So for me, part of my journey has been with many different men at different times, even with kids, I've done this. Uh, have gone through rituals where people are naming the shame, people are um uh literally like puking, like as in ayahuasca ceremonies, you know, uh vomiting, retching expressing that sense of like, this is no longer meant to be in my body. I'm, I'm casting it out, but also like feeling disgust and releasing shame and disgust from the nervous system. Hmm. The more I, the deeper I go with my work, the more I realize that uh, most of our issues, our trauma, our inability to evolve or go past certain sticking points in life a result of energy and emotion trapped within the nervous system. It's, yeah. uh, it's fascinating to me. I've been doing a lot of deep work, both with myself and my clients on, on getting, uh, accessing the nervous system, learning how to access it and then reprogram it. Right on. And it's, it's very rewarding. It, I, I can feel I, the more I focus on this, the faster I get results and the, the more I'm becoming a, an even happier and healthier and more integrated human being, which is, I guess what I'm all about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, that's what I discovered over many years. The same same realization that I can change my mindset. I can have more clarity. Mm-hmm. I can have more purpose. I can change my behavior. But at some point, the old demons, the the primitive responses, the emotional trauma in my nervous system rears its head and says, "No more." until I deal with it. 
It's like a gatekeeper for deeper it's profound change. Yeah, exactly. That's a perfect way to put it. It's a gatekeeper and it will override your attempts at, you know, saying affirmations or, you know, deciding to adopt a healthy habit or whatever it might be, your, your goals. You know, if you're still, if you're still carrying around this trauma in you, mm-hmm. it supersedes everything because it, it has a direct line to your subconscious. So it's making you do things you can't even, you don't even have any awareness of, right? So yeah, man. Yeah. Well, just uh, out of interest sake, David, what do you, what modalities do you use to, to help people access their nervous systems and, and release the traumas within? Uh, well, so I kind of, I work on a model where I integrate different, I go through with my mentees and my clients, I take them through a few sessions of trying out different stuff, mm-hmm. all stuff that I know works, but I want to get them to develop a menu of resources that they're going to use on their own. So they'll have powerful experiences with me, but then after the session, they're going to want to do that on their own. So I go through um, emotional release techniques. I teach them EFT tapping. I I teach them breath work, uh, physical embodied uh, healing processes, reframing. I I just throw a bunch of stuff at them. And then Mm -hmm. I assess and I usually people kind of, coalesce around a few things like oh i love this tool some people like to do um more physical somatic processes some people want it to be more structured some people like it to be more imaginative you know Mm. go into your body and notice what's there other people want you to just give them a step one two three so i kind of design a framework for each person that then i hold them to account to like okay we looked at your shame today. We took it from a nine to a seven. Before I see you next, I want you to do A, B, and C so that it keeps going down in intensity in your nervous system. Sure. There's a kind of committed, um, diligent tending to their nervous system with a tool that they've found helpful. So some people love like the Wim Hof breath work. Other people want to do more. Sometimes it's intuitive. Like some guys I work with, they, they love yoga or running or intense, uh, vigorous core workouts. So I integrate that into their trauma work, you know, into their releasing. So, yeah, so I, I try to design it because I want the long-term growth. What I, what I find with any tools or techniques, people get really, especially when they feel profound result happens, right? They get really attached to that. Like people I know swear by ayahuasca. Some of them, every six months they go for ayahuasca and they only heal through ayahuasca. That becomes their like, it has to be with this person, mm, with mm. this plant medicine at this time in this retreat center that they let themselves heal. And I, I want to break that open and demystify how emotional release works. It's the most natural thing in your nervous system. It's your animal instinct. You don't need special tools and techniques and uh, $10,000 of training. You can learn some really simple things to do on your own, and then we can do stuff together. And then you can do this for the rest of your life. <laughs> so for, for those listening, like just to give them a, yeah. a taste of, of how powerful this, powerful this can be, if you had to just throw out just 
I know you, you use a, a variety of them and, and it depends on the situation, but if you could think of yeah. one just general purpose tool that the guys could get started with, is there anything you can share or offer? Uh, well, I, I think the most powerful tool that I come down to with all of my people that I love to work with is I call it holding paradox. And it's finding that place. Let's say there's shame, right? Okay, I feel shame or or anxiety or something intense, unpleasant. Oh, I don't like it. Uh, I ask them to put one hand on that part of the body and breathe and just just expose them to that. This this is gross. This is hard. This is painful. Don't fix it. Don't escape it. Just breathe for a few breaths. So it's very structured. Uh, time-bound exposure. And then with the other hand, we connect to something resourceful. I love I love my daughter. I love God. I love nature, whatever it is. I connect to that. And I connect that through my nervous system, maybe through another part of the body, or I reach my hand out, or I put my hand in soil or something, right? So now I've got two experiences for my nervous system to contend with. I've got a negative charge and a positive charge. I've got something that I've been running away from my whole life that's been intolerable. And then I've got something really solid, strong, juicy, pleasurable, joyful, uh, grounding. And I the practice I teach is called holding paradox, where you go back and forth between those two states, and then eventually you hold those two states simultaneously. And what happens is that there's a as the charge, the negative charge starts to collapse, and you rewire the entire response. It's the same thing when you do that on a mental level, is you're taking like, yes, I was ashamed for having you know only one test to go i felt less of a man and then you reframe it and i'm realizing that uh i'm resourceful i'm resilient i'm i'm fucking courageous and both are true so the the mind has to contend with the paradox the body has to uh hold the paradox and slowly as you hold that very gradually and naturally people come into an integrated state you know mm. that's that sounds great i'm gonna try that one out for sure holding paradoxes. yeah yeah it's, it's a really simple idea but it's very powerful and and i notice with the people i train in that is they they start to think and and approach life like that like everything is a paradox uh what i'm in a black and white kind of thinking or i'm only feeling something negative i'm I'm really disconnected from the larger truth and from the nature of reality at this moment. So as soon as I contend with paradox, you know, like martial arts is a paradox. We're, we're grappling, we're fighting, but we're also learning to relax and <laughs> go with the flow and enjoy uh, this experience and learn and expand. I mean, what a beautiful paradox, mm. right? At the deepest level of anything, there's an inherent paradox. That's what I've found always. Exactly. exactly. Once, you get, once you get all the layers off at, at its core, you will find a paradox. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, even the idea of healing is a paradox. On one level, there's nothing to heal. We're already whole. But on another level, there's part of us that's really broken. 
and that's that's seeking relief and and seeking reassurance and love so for me that's the realm i love to play in and uh, and there's a lot of I, you've probably found this there's a lot of pitfalls in the in the field of trauma shadow work healing there's people out there promising the moon with like you know instant techniques and you know, charging a lot of money to train people in one day to do something complex. And that takes time to actually be, get competent at. And, and there's, there's a lot of people suffering. I mean, basically everybody's got some trauma that's of impact in their life that maybe they become aware of at some point, maybe they don't. But so I, I feel like the, the paradox holding is really grounding in the sense of that there's no escape, there's no fixing, there's no getting over anything. It's it's like the stoic, you know, the obstacle is the path. <laughs> Whatever is right here is is where I need to go. I, I want to give you a, a parallel to this that I think you might appreciate. I think your yeah. background is Greek, right? Mm-hmm. My wife is Greek and we went to um, Crete once and that's the birthplace of the labyrinth i've been mm-hmm. fascinated by that myth of the labyrinth <laughs> i have the to thief. laugh because the, yes. the work i'm doing with with um, my mentor at the moment is revolving around the labyrinth at, and uh so please Beautiful. continue that's just a great story yeah, yeah. it's it's so rich right thousands of years ago this story and yet it's so relevant in some way or fashion every man that i ever work with has we all have our own labyrinths and there's a minotaur at the center, and he's devouring all the good things in our lives, right? And we want to not go down that fucking labyrinth because it's it, we get lost in there. We we can get devoured ourselves. It stinks. It's dark. It's disorientating. So we all try to escape it. But Theseus is brave enough, the hero, and he goes there out of love. Not because he's just a, a jock who wants to prove himself. He goes there out of love because his love has been sent to this minotaur and he has to reclaim her. And he goes there with intelligence. He has this ball of yarn that he takes with him, this red thread, and it helps him to find his way out. And he goes through trials and tribulations just to get to the center of it. And then he faces the, the minotaur. And ultimately, he slays him. And I think the slaying part is a metaphor. I think all of us in some way need to go and face our demons and wrestle with them, submit them, get to know them, and reclaim that labyrinth, that inner world. So it's not a dangerous place, but that's our home. That's, that's, that's our place of rejuvenating and healing. That's our cave where we go to heal. So I think it's a really beautiful myth to think of our own lives, you know? Yeah. And shame uh, is that darkness, right? That. Yeah. And ultimately it's something that you have to, this is going to sound weird, but what I'm realizing is like those dark parts of yourself, your shame and your guilt and all those, the weaknesses you have, all those things that you push away not only do you have to bring them into the light, you've got to fucking love those things. You've got to love them because they're a part of you and they were, they're ultimately there to keep you safe. 
right? Mm. They were trying to keep you safe, even though they were mis- misguided or maybe not useful in that particular instance, they were just trying to keep you safe. And if you reject a part of you, you're ultimately rejecting all of you. So mm. yeah, you've got to fucking love those things, which is, it's not easy, David. It's not easy, but it's, it's beneficial. Well said. Yeah. Well, it's, it's the only way to be whole too, right? Exactly. Exactly. Well, man, uh, what a, <laughs> what an interesting conversation. It far exceeded my already high expectations. And, uh, I just really thank you for, for being the person that you are. You were the right person to help me take that step of courage. And, mm. um, because you've taken a similar step in many ways, if the people listening to this want to reach out and find out more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to go, David? Yeah. So you can go to powerfulandloving.com. That's powerful and loving, like the Martin Luther King quote, mm-hmm. power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. And we're a community <laughs> of men who practice and train like a dojo to be powerful and loving. And um, if you go there, you'll find there's a quiz on discovering your saboteurs, which kind of takes you into this realm of your shadow, of our wounds, of those things that hold us back, those forces, and starting that journey or continuing that journey of healing. It's such a pleasure, Nick. I hope we keep having conversations and, and getting to we know will. each other. We will. I want to get uh, I want to get you and Rocco together on a on a show or introduce the two of you. I think uh, awesome. I think that'll be a very powerful conversation. My man, bless you and your family, and uh, speak again soon. You too. Take care. There's an expression that I've been reflecting on lately, which is your greatest power is hidden in the last place you would ever want to look. And speaking about that with David and that particular topic and sharing that and being vulnerable about that is the last place I ever wanted to look or to allow anyone else to look. And, uh, you know, I get, I get a lot of feedback about the show from people around the world. And that's one of the things that gave me the courage to do this is because is the feedback is overwhelmingly positive. And I realized that the kind of people, the kind of men that are listening to this, this show are the kind that would not judge me for sharing something like that. And as I said to David in the episode, even if there were those who would judge me, you know, I I don't want those people in my life anyway. And uh, I don't know what else to say, except thank you for listening, guys. And I'll be back soon with another episode. Until next time, keep the faith.